Well, welcome everybody. Hello. Hello and welcome to the Good Writing Podcast, where two MFA friends talk writing craft. Excellent. That is where you are, and on today's episode, we are talking about Jorge Luis Borges' short story, Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. And I almost got through that whole thing and all those syllables, but not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Some days, syllables are there's, they're, they're, uh, more insurmountable than, than on other days. <laughs> what I have to... Uh, the climb Syllable Mountain. Um, <laughs> Join us we do. for Mount Syllable and Don Quixote and Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but that is what we are discussing today. It's a great short story. Um, you can find it online. I might link to a PDF in the show notes if you want to read it, just a little clandestinely. Um, I think he's dead. I don't think we'll get caught. He is dead, but he has an estate, and I don't know how um, big they are on suing. Um, wow. But I yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. Um, if you're part of the Borges estate um, and you want to come on the podcast, let me know. Um, but, yeah. Um, and this, we talk about like formal experimentation. So mm-hmm. this, this short story is in the format of a piece of literary criticism, and we talk about like opportunities for how to how to have that inspire your own formal experimentation. Exactly. All right. Uh, I think it's a good episode, as I do with every episode, and I'm telling the truth every single time. Um, and I hope you all agree with us. Um, so enjoy. Stay tuned to find out if you agree. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello, and welcome. Hey, Emily. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Happy podcast recording day. It's lovely to see you again. Happy podcast recording day to you as well. The listeners don't know, but we had we did take a little bit of a break between last episode and this episode for recording. But we're on top of it enough where you still get one every week. Very smooth. But, uh, behind the scenes, the kitchen is behind a closed door for a reason. <laughs> you don't want to see how the sausage gets made. I have a very long detour on sausage getting made. Do you Do think it. all those gross videos about, like, animal farming, do you mm-hmm. think they actually impact if people stop eating meat? I, hmm... That's a really good question. I, mm, I, I really don't know, because when when we were teaching, um, I used to show the movie Food Inc. every year. Mm. I watched that movie every semester for twelve semesters, <laughs> and I still eat meat. So, um, may, maybe it doesn't. May, maybe they don't. <laughs> yeah. Flirted with vegetarianism, mm-hmm, no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, are you on? Did it impact how frequently you eat meat? I don't think so, because like I also I eat meat relatively infrequently already. Fran's vegetarian, so like mo- if we're cooking at home, we're cooking vegetarian, so that just per- helps that not happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm already like pretty much a person where I only eat meat if I'm out, anyways. So. But every time I'm out, I, I do eat meat, so... Right, consistent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how about how about you? Like, what, what do you think? Do you think people's minds are changed by those videos? I think they're impacted. I was vegetarian okay. for about three years. Um, okay. And 
it was I, 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 I point to Jonathan Stephen Foyer's uh, nonfiction book Eating Animals as to why I did mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I read Eating Animals a few years before I actually started vegetarianism so it, I, for mm-hmm. me it was like a con- it was really confluence multiple reasons coming together until there was yeah. finally kind of an arbi- relatively arbitrary breaking point it mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. I was studying abroad in Spain and I lived in like the Spanish version of a dorm mm-hmm. and where mm-hmm. like there was like a, a cook who cooked for the whole dorm basically yeah. it was like an apartment building but like for college kids yeah. um and with a cook who came like most days um and spaniards eat so much meat man <laughs> it, it, we were having i had a breaking point meal it was meat stuffed pasta with meat sauce and hot dogs on the side and i was like ya no como carne <laughs> yeah no no <laughs> oh man that's fair hot dogs on the side yeah uh, man, it was it was, it was a very neat heavy semester until i was like today is the day <laughs> we're done <laughs> we're done i've had all enough of a sudden, all of a sudden i care about the environment and animals <laughs> so i was vegetarian for like three years and then my partner ocean loves meat, eat meats all the t- eats meat all the time. And mm-hmm. I really think that most habits are based on what your home habits are, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I eat meat again very regularly. Yeah. But Yeah. I don't know. We also live in a society that is so interested in just you know, it, it meat is part of the ideal. The the meat industry is so large where it's just like it, it's impossible to escape from under it. Like it's just gonna be shown to you all the time. You have to actively seek out alternatives, whereas the default is to eat it. So it's just it's easier. Like is yes. the sad truth of it. Yeah. Like yes. and I am really like I do think even in the past five years, like impossible burgers, like vegetarian options mm-hmm. have are are much more like they exist now mm-hmm, consistently mm-hmm. almost everywhere are mm-hmm. they great no <laughs> not always but yeah they're, they're, they're okay we we made some impossible tacos the other day you know oh, so, was great no, yeah just mean, like if you're going out i've had yeah. some very bland veggie ver- it's just veggie yeah this is what's consistently available there's always one veggie burger <laughs> It's the same Morningstar patty that you have in your own freezer. Is is the thing, right? Like, yeah. Why, Why pay twelve? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like when you're at the, ordering the one vegetarian option off of a menu at a restaurant. It is it always feels like a slightly saddening affair. Like I, I always feel like, oh, hmm, great. Fran could get the same veggie burger that she's had a thousand times, or just uh, she can order one of the salads but without meat on it. Like exactly. she has to specially request them to not do it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> This is why when you were like, I always eat meat when I go out, I'm like, yeah, you're basically flexitarian in my mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's basically the healthiest anybody can be, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Other than meat, uh, how's writing going? It's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last episode, we said we'd get back on a 15-minute yeah. day grind, and every day I thought about it, and uh, yeah. it didn't, ha- didn't happen. But, what about you? Oh, exact same. The exact same. That, but the thinking about it is the first step. The thinking about getting back on the grind. That's how I did it last time, is I thought about it for two weeks, and then I actually started doing it. So hopefully yeah. I can think about it for one and start yeah. this time. So it's a net it's, improvement. It's <laughs> a step. 
Yeah, I got a. Um, I had my manuscript out with a literary agent who I was uh, excited mm-hmm. about and mm-hmm. uh, got a rejection this week. So I've just Damn been it. walking around the house feeling pissed off. <laughs> eh, screw them. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're fine. No, they they gave a very nice note. Um, oh, that's nice. Just, uh, yeah, no, it was nice. They, they read it through and they made a, a good decision. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a demotivator in my, should I get back on my 15-minute-a-day grind? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it, it's it, it's bad that I, I feel like the both of us are like positive reinforcement people. Like if you tell us we're doing well, we're going to want to do more. Mm-hmm. Whereas like it, it's it, it, in this business, it's a lot of you have to be okay with negative reinforcement. Like you just have to be okay with the no, we don't want it. And that has to be what encourages you to do better. Like, Yeah, I'm not a spite motivated person. I'm not yeah. a prove them wrong motivated person. Um, yeah. I just want someone to say that sounds really interesting. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this and I like you and we need more. Like, <laughs> well, then I like your stuff and I like you and we need mm-hmm. more of it. So I think this Agreed. could be our fifteen minutes a day week. All right, this is it because I feel the exact same way about you, Emily. So Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pleasure to serve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, just wondering if there's anything that you've been enjoying reading wise specifically we can get to the bigger recommendation later but yeah yeah i am reading kazuo ishiguro's clara and the sun um is that his new one or an older one from him it's his new one okay um, sherry recommended it when she oh, okay with us yep. like a few yep, months yep, yep. ago um mm-hmm. it is actually my work book club book which is um, oh neat interesting yeah i mean like a company an all remote company trying to make people like know each other is that's a that's a task it's, it's so hilarious I got, this, I got this book for you from work <laughs> hey <laughs> pretty good um and it's in subject matter completely down so the other, only other kazuo ishiguro book that i've read mm-hmm. i think is the same like only one that you've read probably is mm-hmm. um the remains of the day the remains of the day thank god you're here yeah yeah um, <laughs> yeah the remains of the day which is a Masterclass of a novel, mm-hmm. The Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. Um, this it's The Remains of the Day is about a butler in uh, the UK in, in Britain, and mm-hmm. like it's about you know he's like English pr- like properness and like mm-hmm. values and um, this book Clara and the Sun by Cosmo Shiro is about a robot um, mm-hmm. who an artificial friend for a uh, socially anxious child. And mm-hmm. I was like, subject matter-wise, this is a completely different <laughs> mm-hmm, situation. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a set in the future, um, just, like, dystopian, set in the future, mm-hmm. told mm-hmm. from the robot's perspective. But then I realized, actually, it does have a lot in common with The Remains of the Day, because they are both the robot, Clara, mm-hmm. and the butler, who narrates the main character in The Remains of the Day, are both very emotionally repressed people. Okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. actually, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. like, he, he did... T- he, he put it in a new context, but actually, I think these books have a lot in common. Oh, neat. Nice. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, is, is this book about, like, a robot discovering that it can love, or does it are, or, or are feelings for robots already a given in this? Like Feelings for robot are not a given. Okay. I think the robot doesn't realize that that's a problem at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a goodie. That's, that's what I'm reading. I'm enjoying it. What about you? Interesting. Um, I am reading the book Bricks and Mortar by uh, Clemens Meyer. Um, it, it's a German novel. It was translated into English in like 2017. I think it came out maybe about 10 years earlier. It's a big, thick tome. Um, it's got 
Um, I, it was it was nominated for the English Pen for Best in Translation. I, I don't know if it won or not, but um, it's it's good. Um, it's about uh, sex workers in Berlin, um, basically. Like, and it kind of has this kind of big time span from like right after the wall fell up to the present of when the novel was being written. Like, and just kind of about the like ways that the fall of communism affected people working as sex workers essentially um and it's told in this very very modernist style um is so there's kind of like you don't really know any characters names and the perspective there's a very thin line between interiority and exteriority like dialogue doesn't get tagged a lot of the time sometimes it does but sometimes you'll suddenly realize that a character is saying something out loud that you thought that they were thinking and you're not quite sure when that like line exactly crossed in in there um or, or you're not exactly sure who's talking there might be two people in a scene but their voices are similar and they kind of overlap and blend mm-hmm. uh, on stuff so it has that very kind of like lightly dreamlike lightly hallucinogenic sort of stylization um it's it's interesting about about 100 pages in i like it um i think there are some really strong character moments like because it's so big so it like spans and there's like you know tons of characters you meet a lot of the different sex workers who all have memories of other people that aren't actually directly in the book and you meet all of their johns and all this sort of stuff and, and all of these voices excuse me, kind of overlap with each other throughout the book. It's it's neat. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, I'm ignorant. How, just historically, how did the fall of communism impact sex workers? Uh, well, you know, it seems like how everything in the world impacts, impacts sex workers, which is not positively. Like, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of, they talk about how this, there was an, in these spaces, there is often a set order that ends up being established by certain criminal organizations. And then when there's large-scale world shifts, those organizations inevitably fall apart in the power struggle, and then there's a period of intermittent violence while, while they're being replaced. Like, yeah. So it's never it's never really a good thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's, that's what I've been reading. Yeah. On oh, that. Dear, mm-hmm. dear, dear listener... Um, mm-hmm. Next week, I intend to talk, speaking of sex work, intend to talk about uh, Melissa Phoebos and uh, Whip Smart. So if, if you uh, wish to uh, have a more informed listen, uh, Whip Smart by Melissa Phoebos will be on the docket for next week. Excellent. Speaking of sex work. <laughs> yeah, cool. Oh, cool. I didn't know that that's what that book was about. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm Melissa Phoebos is, mm-hmm, uh, we'll please. talk about this next week, but she's yeah. a... Uh, She's faculty at Iowa for Iowa's MFA, mm-hmm. um, and she's a former professional dominatrix. Oh, uh, cool! And so her first whip smart is about her experience as a <laughs> professional dominatrix. Nice, nice. Yeah. The I'm sure that's a really good read, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really fun. It's really fun. <laughs> uh, cool. Oh yeah. All right. Well, with that, um, let's get into our meat of today's episode, uh, which is. Meat. <laughs> Speaking of meats, of delicious, <laughs> uh, m- much like processed meat, this story is infused with nitrates. Uh, no, it's not. Um, because, uh, All grown, antibiotic free. <laughs> Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. Um, <laughs> today we are talking about uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges' uh, Collected uh, work, uh, Pierre, Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, which originally appeared in, I want to say, in uh, Ficciones. 
I, I just have the collected fiction, so that I blur together on which one is in which one. Uh, yes, from his second collection, uh, Ficciones or Fictions, uh, as it is known, came in 1944 is when that was published. Um, yeah, so just before we get into the thing that I want to bring in about this or for craft, uh, what what'd you think? What the hell is what I thought? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Have you not so, read this before? No, I have. I'm okay. pretty okay. ignorant on this. So okay. Jorge's, Jorge Luis Borges is a mm-hmm. literary critic who I, people have handed me his book before and I just haven't sat down mm-hmm. and read him before. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have mm-hmm. any context there. Um, uh, so this is a short story. Mm-hmm where a highly regarded literary critic um, makes up a fictional character who has just rewritten Don Quixote word for word. Essentially. It, I think in the world of this that the, the Pierre Menard does exist in according to this fictional literary critic, because the literary critic is fictional. And, and then... Wait, there was a whole other layer. So the literary critic who's writing is not... This is not for his. He's created a, a literary critic character. Yes, and that character is the one it, who who is who has not invented this man, but is writing his eulogy. Because I I think Pierre Menard exists in the world of Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. Okay, hang on. I am mind blown. I'm processing. Yeah. <laughs> just like one extra level there that I'm, I'm currently processing. <laughs> Please hold while I look. Um, cool. Yeah, so my impression is, um, this is so weird, Ben. <laughs> of course mm-hmm, it's weird. Mm-hmm. So it's a literary critic making up a literary critic in a, in a, who writes about a uh, character mm-hmm. who just copies Don Quixote word for word. Um, yes. And or does he? <laughs> I'm going to flip. Uh, so <laughs> I, my belief in my world... <laughs> In my mm-hmm. understanding, he copies Don Quixote word for word. And then the one of the final pages here is, like, it's a revelation to compare Don Quixote from Pierre Menard versus mm-hmm. that of Miguel de Cervantes. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Miguel de Cervantes wrote this, and he copies, like, a, mm-hmm. sent- a sentence from... And, he, and he's like, this is... this." is mere rhetorical praise of history when, Don, mm-hmm. when Miguel de Cervantes says it, but when mm-hmm. Pierre Menard says it, mm-hmm. history is the mother of truth. The idea is staggering. It's the same fucking <laughs> symptoms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is so silly. I love yeah. it. <laughs> what does this yeah. mean, Ben? <laughs> it, I, I mean, I think it's... It, I think interpreting it as silly is correct because it's definitely like Borges attempting... He's being funny with yeah. this like that that is definitely a joke in him making fun of literary criticism um uh, in this um you know way in which it kind of like is very arbitrary and i think he's calling attention to like a sort of shift in uh, modernism when we see the idea of the death of the author taking hold like this seems to be like maybe kind of like aligning with that sort of ideal of saying that like the you know or, or even making fun of it to a certain extent saying that like oh look if we if the author is what's most important then because he wrote it the exact same sentence in our contemporary times it means so much more than when it was originally written even though it's literally the exact same thing like kind of aligning with that feeling yeah yeah Yeah, as i was reading i was like my eye was like jumping between the two copy pastes Mm -hmm. of the same sentence and i was like 
wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The joke was dawning upon me as it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. That uh, there's this man attempting to recreate uh, the Quixote, but by coming to it naturally is how it feels. Like, what if instead of not recreating it, but actually creating it, but creating it a second time? Like, it's so strange. Yeah. That is part of why the joke, like, took took a little lag mm-hmm. for it to land for me. Mm-hmm. So, this character, mm-hmm. Leonard, mm-hmm. he's... The literary critic is... The the, the narrator is claiming mm-hmm. that Pierre Menard just rewrote it, coincidentally, word by word, and did Ugh. not just mm. copy and retranscribe it. Was not, like, looking at Don Quixote while he was writing it. That seems. Mm-hmm. I, that I doubt it. There. Yeah. <laughs> because he talks about like the ways in which Pierre Menard was attempting to find the ways to create. There's this big paragraph on like page ninety two, ninety three uh, of I think of the PDF I sent you that uh, I think goes into this uh, on an interesting way. Um, yeah, the paragraph uh, where yeah. Pierre Menard yeah. is, like, it, it copies something that Pierre Menard wrote in the letter. Yeah, the the uh, the quote. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, just starting at the very bottom. I have assumed that the mysterious obligation to reconstruct word for word the novel that for him was spontaneous. This game of solitaire I play is governed by two polar rules. The first allows me to try out formal or psychological variants. The second forces me to sacrifice them to the original text and to come by irrefutable arguments to those eradications. In addition to these first two artificial constraints, there is another inherent to the project. Composing the Quixote in the early 17th century was a reasonable, necessary, perhaps even inevitable undertaking. In the early 20th, it is virtually impossible. Not for nothing have 300 years elapsed, freighted with the most complex events. Among those events, to mention but one, is the Quixote itself. Um, This man... This man, I feel like writers who, like, in a harder, like, what frivolous people writers are is <laughs> deeply the that's occurring to me. Deeply. And deeply frivolous in, in the early 20th century, the early 1900s, like, I think, pretentious as well, like, just wealthy and disconnected from reality right like yeah the early modernism the high modernist period and just kind of like a time when literary theory was being very like elevated i think as like a smart thing and not like an annoying thing like we think of it now um yeah (laughs) but yeah i doubt it man i still don't (laughs) like even in the world of this story yeah i don't believe you pierre menard i don't believe that you are inventing don quixote from scratch i simply don't believe it Mm -hmm. Um, i think that you're looking at don quixote and transcribing it Um, Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. would he lie about this? What a useless <laughs> undertaking! <laughs> I, I I think it's interesting that you think the character is lying. Like, there's no yeah. way in hell, Ben, that he got a, comma by comma in a language mm-hmm. that isn't his first language. There is no way. Like yeah. the characters. First mm-hmm. French, right? And he learned. Yeah. And he learned Castilian Spanish. Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
yeah. Like, I, I agree with you that there is no way, like, I, if this were to be undertaken in the real world, of course, like, and if this were to be occurring, like, yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that his event is impossible. And I just think the word lie is interesting because I think lie implies that he knows the truth and isn't telling it. Whereas I think Pierre Menard was attempting to do this. I th- oh, that's God. why it was never finished. That's why it was never published, because he couldn't do it. Because you can't do this thing that he's describing. It's, liter- it's literally impossible. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm, also interesting. I mean, how did he even get the one sentence right? You know, yeah. the one arbitrarily right like he just decided that that was the one that was right and then yeah i think part of part of my skepticism is that Mm -hmm. the literary critic narrator character says Mm -hmm. that no one has ever found any drafts or additional Mm -hmm. notes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is like what did he no that's a clue that there aren't other drafts and additional notes he just transcribed it word for word in my mind at least yeah exactly like he also talks about him like destroying a lot of his writing and stuff like that like so there's like that nice cover for that like if that is is the case of what's going on that those other notes don't exist like yeah I, I, I like that because I think that's totally possible and it and it fits in with the character they ascribe because of that uh, sentence that comes up pretty early in when um, the critic is uh, recounting all of his published work, mm-hmm. um, all of Menard's published work, and, and you know his example P is a, a diatribe against Par Valere, Paul Valere in Jacques Robel's. Uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. No, sorry, that was Spanish accent. de la all right, we'll take that. Um, which diatribe, I might add parenthetically, states the exact reverse of Menard's true opinion of Valerie. That exact reverse thing, it yeah. comes up later in the story as well to show that this guy is kind of a trickster. So it, it's like, I think that speaks well to your idea that maybe he is just lying. Like, uh, uh, that's that makes sense of that. Yeah, like... He's a prankster pulling an extremely elaborate prank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to an but, audience of... A- what seems like one (laughs) yes to himself to himself and this guy he's writing letters to occasionally like yeah yeah. (laughs) bizarre Bizarre character yeah absolutely bizarre characters throughout and also like this opening paragraph i I just want to read this because it makes the narrator like is established as like a weird conspiracy theorist in this paragraph Mm. also did you catch that or let's read it yeah here okay so we have the visible ouvroir left by the novel this novelist can be easily and briefly enumerated. Unpardonable, therefore, are the omissions and additions perpetrated by uh, Monsieur Henri Bachelier in a deceitful catalogue that a certain newspaper, whose Protestant leanings are surely no secret, mm-hmm. has been so inconsiderate as to inflict upon the newspaper's deplorable readers, few and Calvinist, if not Masonic and circumcised though they be. Um, that that. That opening right there is just as like, wow, okay, so he's got a weird thing against, like, Protestants and Jewish people in this moment. Like, it's, yeah, it it embroils him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I think um, if we want to go into the thing that I think is, is there anything else you want to bring up in this before we move into... uh, I'm I'm curious what element you Mm -hmm. want to focus on. I want to focus on the element of 
taking elements of nonfiction, and you, we had another episode where we had a piece that did this as well. You you brought in a short story um, from who was the author of that? The uh, the one that was the essay written by the kid about the um, the monster that had come and stolen her boyfriend. Oh, um, walk dog. Yeah, walk dog. Yeah, yeah. walk dog. By Sophia Samatar. Thank you, thank you. Walk Dog does a very similar thing um, in that it is um, it is a piece of fiction that it uses a non-fictional form as its uh, thrust, mm. and that is a thing that I really love. I really love work that does this. I think it's super interesting, and I think it's also like it lets an author do a lot of playing that I think some that you can be very playful in this way that you can't be when you're just writing straight fiction I think a lot of the time but when yeah. you do this form borrowing it, it, it opens up that space really well and I just think that this is a great example of that and we just can talk about other examples as well if we want but yeah yeah like yeah I love that that's mm-hmm. so I actually confession like mm-hmm. skipped I know I've, I've heard about this like after I had read mm-hmm. it I was like wait no I've kind of heard about this before but mm-hmm. like I came in with I skipped where it said collections collected fictions and uh, mm-hmm. all I remembered about Borges, Borges was that he was a literary critic so mm-hmm. I like actually thought that this was like a real literary critic like I thought that this was <laughs> non-fiction while yeah. reading this till I was like truly a couple pages and I was like this can't be right <laughs> Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely correct. Yeah, it in fact wasn't right. Mm hmm, mm hmm. But yeah, the the um the way in which we take on the forms, and I I, knowing that Borges is a literary critic, like obviously he's using a form he's very used to, Mm -hmm. um, to bring this in. Um, I, I just think that that leads. It allows you to create fictional characters, I think, that feel more like real people because they are couched in a form that helps us suspend our disbelief a little bit more easily. Like, we're already used to this being non-fictional if we're encountering something in this space. As well as allowing you to couch those characters more in the world itself that they're in because it it implies a larger world outside of these characters, one in which there was criticism of these characters and in which they are, like, known aspects of, like, study and scholarship having to do with the contents of your story, that they aren't just existing as they happen to the characters themselves. Um, and yes. I, I just find that stuff kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I really like it. And I also, like, if we're putting this in conversation with Walk Dog by the mm-hmm. story by Sophia Samatar, they're both um, first-person Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is in addition to the format of using a literary critic essay or a school book assignment report um, I think the first person adds additional credibility to like it de- definitely helps me buy in right because it's, it's mm-hmm. a, a character who's writing an allegedly academic situation but also like we're getting a lot about the character the narrator mm-hmm. character through how they perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like we, the narr- the narrator, while they are not the subject of this at all, is entirely present throughout. Like we, we see their opinion and their like reflection on all of this, even though it is essentially about this other person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that's super cool uh, to do that. I, I think it leads to a lot of really fun stuff. Um, yeah. And it's something yeah. that I think more writers should do. Yeah. I, f- 
firmly agree. I do <laughs> think um, literary critic essay was uh, a less accessible choice mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. nonfiction format. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely playing like inside to fellow, you know, whatever format you choose as mm-hmm. your like nonfiction mm-hmm. play. Uh, if that nonfiction format isn't familiar to your reader, they won't yeah. get the joke, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, I wouldn't want to do. Yeah, I, I, I would. I think like a, 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 a. You're you're really tailoring to your audience, you know. Yeah. When you're, when yeah. You, when you yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So like, what. If we were to choose other forms, I, I think it's interesting to bring that up because it's like, what what can writers bring in? Because we're we're stuck we're stuck on the page, so it's like obviously you can't make it like a documentary, but yeah. it, in the form of, of a book. I mean, maybe you could try, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, like we, we've seen this in terms of like essay and whatnot, but like and in this like very specific like literary crit essay here, what what else might writers be able to bring in or borrow from that might be useful? Yeah, I think it's probably whatever fits the subject matter or the narrative mm-hmm. best, right? So, mm-hmm. Walk Dog, it was a, a school kid who was mm-hmm. writing a school assignment, and that she like had kind of bad grammar and like made some mm-hmm. mistakes, um, and yeah, it was really fitting for that character. Like, what is something that that character would actually write down? Mm-hmm. Not a strong writer would only do it for an assignment. So, um, and then also it helped to emphasize like that the kids were young, that it was school kids happening mm-hmm. too. Um, and I think this are absolutely like this obscure literary critic situation only makes sense mm-hmm. for a literary critic essay. Um, mm-hmm. I think like, I don't know, are you doing something about, I think like a uh, science fiction novum, could that be in a science report format? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think like that should probably be determined by either what makes the most sense for that narrator or the subject matter. Mm-hmm. So so you think that, like, form should follow after character, then, in that scenario? You like, know I'm character first, yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's really fine. I mean, I, I'm just... Clarity, because I just think that's that's interesting. Like, yeah, the, what you, that it's all... What was your instinct? Well, well look, my, my instinct is always to go from form first and then have other things fall out of that. Like, character will then fit to, into form, like, j- just out of nature of it. But... Yeah, the, it's just you and I are gonna come at this come yeah. to the same solution. Which other formats mm-hmm. do we think are, are rich to give into? Mm-hmm. I was saying I do think you and I are like um I'm maybe starting with character to determine form. Yeah. And you're starting with form to determine yeah. character. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, like we both want them to match. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They 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 need to meet in the middle. Like absolutely. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. It, I just think it's it's very interesting, I, I think, to use this sort of formal element, but it, it, I have seen examples where it goes too far, where it kind of reaches past the reach exceeds the grasp. Um, the, there like is a um, very interesting publisher called Gnome Books, and it's spelled like G-N-0-M-E uh, for anyone interested out there. Uh, what they do is everything that's written for them is published anonymously, 
So it, nothing, everything is all done under pseudonyms or, or like weird abbreviations and, and stuff like that, or, or like written under the guise of being collectives. And I have a, I have a suspicion that everything that they publish is written by like maybe three or four people who are in total doing everything because all the works are kind of like weaving together this giant fictional universe, it feels like. And um, a lot of their stuff is um, all kind of what falls under the guise of theory fiction. And I think theory fiction is an example where this goes a little farther than it... Because like, you were talking about like, oh, this can only really be understood from a angle of... Um, like a person coming to it from literary like criticism background to get the joke well the, those works go so far that i think you can really only understand them if you have a like background in analytic philosophy as well as like an understanding of the like more obscure points of hp lovecraft's literature kind of thing so it's very very specified um, in, in the kind of stuff that they produce. So it's interesting, but it also, like, it, it, at a certain point, you just feel like you don't know what you're reading. Um, because, yeah. yeah, yeah. Inaccessible. Which isn't a crime, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. for the ten people alive who know enough to get that joke, mm-hmm. they probably freaking love that philosophy plus H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and... I, I do think, you know, I've had experiences where I feel like the more obscure a reference, the, like, more rewarding it mm-hmm. is for the handful of people who get mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Ben. Oh, my God. Am I arguing in favor of inaccessibility you are. while you're a frustrated by I it? am. It, oh, it's ha- we, we flipped. We, we flipped our things because I, I feel like this is one of those things where it, it works best when it's inviting readers in. And, like, mm-hmm. it, it works best, I think, when it's at its most playful. Um, I, I, the example I can come up with for that is um, uh, Roberto Bolaño wrote a book called Nazi Literature in the Americas, which is a, like, fake textbook that has, like, these small biographies of, you know, white supremacist uh, literary people who escaped to South America for the most part after World War II and and a few before then just people that ended up in the Americas and it's all kind of like the story like these weird little stories about who they were and like what they were like and and what they did it's I I will say like uh, Roberto Bolaño is not a Nazi so all this is done in a tongue-in-cheek matter and like in such a way that they are definitely the subject of the joke kind of thing or are not portrayed as being good for their beliefs by any means. But, um, right. yeah, it, and it's... I think it works really well because, like, everyone has a conception of what an author is. We all know who the Nazis are. We're all... It, on a certain level, we're at least aware that a fair amount of Nazis escaped to, like, Argentina and other parts of South America after the end of World War II, and if we aren't, this book does a decent job of explaining that to you because, you know, they're being detailed in their stories. Um, and, and I think that it kind of works as a really great exemplar of this sort of writing because you feel like you are reading about the lives of actual people while their stories are, you know, get to be heightened enough to be fictional. Like, it, it, it gets to intersect into that really interesting, like, liminal space where you know something is fake even though it feels completely real. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's... It's really interesting, but yeah, I, I definitely see it's like, you know, the more obscure references, the the more satisfying it is going to be for the people that get it. Like, that, that is 100% the case, too. Yeah. 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 
why do you think we're, ha- we're having the turntables? Oh, how the turntables turn mm-hmm. uh, on this specific subject. Uh, um, hmm. Yeah, what do you think? We're, um, I, I th- why do you think this is... this? You are not someone who regularly is like, inviting the reader yeah. as a priority. Yeah, like, that's true. I'm so yeah. curious why this is different. Yeah, I, I wonder also. I'm not really sure. Um, l- let's see. I, it might have to do with the... Um, I, I really think that this sort of, like, very form-forward kind of writing, um, I, I think part of the reason that I like this form to be inviting is, I think, because it's a way to introduce readers to formally strict works, and, like, uh. it, it brings... It, the It very obviously wears on its face its formality, and, and then that because of that a reader who is maybe not used to that sort of thing can walk into it and find purchase there um whereas in with other kinds of works that are also very formally strict that i enjoy a lot like they do not do that so i think that this works is a good kind of introduction for readers and writers to play with form to understand that form is something that you can play with and that you're not always stuck in the traditional like approach to fiction of you know point a to point b characters do this characters do that sort of thing like that makes sense you're like this is our first foot forward you guys yeah (laughs) we we can get people to like it yeah (laughs) (laughs) we won't just turn them away at the door with this one exactly yeah (laughs) but yeah yeah i I think that might be wise because i see it as a useful um uh, conversation point to bring people in with, yeah. Yeah, I think with, I think the reason that I'm like, I don't know, let it be obscure mm-hmm. if they, if, if so yeah. long as they know that that's what they're doing, yeah. you know, is with formal experimentation. If it's visually obvious when I open the document mm-hmm. that this is a formal experimentation, mm-hmm. my expectation is like a little adjusted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I may not get this. This may not be for mm-hmm. me. Like I can tell that just gla- opening the document and glancing at it, I can say like, mm-hmm. okay, this looks like a book report. Like, do I want to read this or whatever the mm-hmm. other form? Whatever be. the choice is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think also something that makes a big difference. I was just looking at the translator name on this, um, but I think something that makes a big difference on whether or not the formal experiment is like you know going to be acceptable to the reader is just at the end of the day the quality of the writing itself like i I think borges has a big advantage of being a very very talented writer uh andrew hurley's translation is very successful uh, of the piece like you know it reads very smoothly um i I think sophia samatar also falls into that of having written something well uh, underneath all that um yeah, and I think, and I think sometimes when you know this is the problem that I think we've discussed before in an issue that you have brought up to me with these sort of more formal things is that when it gets nail navel gazy, and when we lose access to that core of like actual like entertaining language and um, you know purpose driven like word choice, um, it, we the piece loses something overall, and, and it's hard to fi- it's harder for the reader to find their way back in in those scenarios yeah yeah definitely speaking of Sophia Samatar's writing of Lockdown mm-hmm. so Sophia Samatar told a story on a podcast once Lockdown mm-hmm. um, just language is so different mm-hmm. from her other short stories mm-hmm. in that collection but also a lot of the short stories are very different from each mm-hmm. other 
Um, she once inter- entered multiple stories in for a contest, mm-hmm. and she was the top two. Like it was judged widely, and they didn't realize that they had selected <laughs> her versus her as the top two. Damn, um, good for her. Yeah, <laughs> good for her. And I think that formal that the the format experimentation, like, and having it, it in our two examples, Borges and mm-hmm. the Scimitar, like having it be written by a narrator really helps make a writer capture a different voice and a different way of writing. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, if you are a writer who is trying to um, diversify what your stories feel like, mm-hmm. this is a really good exercise mm-hmm. to get you there. Because mm-hmm. um, it's going to force you to think more about, like, well, how does the language of a peer-reviewed essay or a peer-reviewed research paper, what is that language like? How would this narrator write it? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, this is a really, I think, really good exercise if yeah. you're trying to, like, diversify what your stories sound like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agreed. And, and with that, I think we, unless you have anything else you want to say on on this piece, we can move straight into the uh, exercise itself, which is that, you know. Yeah, yeah. let's yeah. do it. Uh, take, a, uh, take a form of something else, specifically something non-fictional, and then write a fictionalized version of that. Give it character, give it setting, give it world, and, and then, you know, what does that form allow you to do as a writer that you're not allowed to do in when you're writing fiction or writing a story in the way that you might usually write it? Like, very yeah. a fun experiment. Also, it's just, it's also just really fun to do this. Like, this is a good way to entertain yourself, if nothing else. <laughs> for real, for real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, just forms top of mind. Newspaper article mm-hmm. uh, on little news brief um book report Mm -hmm. um what's i think too like this really gives you an opportunity to think to develop the the narrator character Mm -hmm. like what would they write like is this a writer is this someone who writes regularly Mm -hmm. or is this someone who um doesn't write very often Mm -hmm. and what are the rare types of forms where they would write yeah yeah And, and that lets you pay attention to like written voice as written voice rather than as specifically as character voice too which is something that we don't get to explore as often because I think it's rare to find characters writing and then writing that writing down. Like, it happens sometimes, yeah. of course, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think there's, like, plenty of epistolary novels mm-hmm. where it's, like, letters from one mm-hmm. character to another mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a good good format for a reason, but I think since people don't really write, write so many letters today, like, think through, like, what kind of letters do people write? Yeah. Like a legal letter mm. a notice of a divorce yeah. uh, what what kind of things do people actually put in writing yeah yeah I, I think uh, something else to keep in mind if we're going on other forms to steal too um, just with that things like uh, standardized tests uh, could be a, a form that you could take to do something interesting with um, any sort of documentation forms tax forms DMV forms that sort of thing taking those and then twisting on them to like make them about something else essentially is another way to look at this kind of exercise yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Or, you know things through like when are times where you've had to put something in writing mm-hmm. um recently had to send an unhappy email to my property manager because he won't fix the damn thing that he said he would fix you know um and now i'm thinking like oh could i make that could i take that to an absurd end like could i make the email about like instead of the garage door not working is it being eaten by a monster mm-hmm. you know where else can i go with mm-hmm. this yeah absolutely it, it gives you a really wide space it, it's cool and, and it lets yeah. you 
and just like now I'm just kind of riffing but like it, doing something like that like you just mentioned like oh am I, am I being eaten by a monster in general this sort of thing really can be helped by like you can write really funny stuff if you're talking taking about the banalities that occur within like uh maybe science fiction or fantasy section uh, uh scenarios is a great thing to do with this like you know any sort of insurance report that you would have to fill out after a superhero has been through a place like i, I feel like that's has to have been done by this point but that's just like what comes to mind kind of thing like yeah <laughs> yeah i mean a banal detail in an absurd world yeah i think is a great thing yeah yeah um Cool. Yeah. I love it, Ben. Great exercise. Yeah. Fun stuff. Thank you, Jorge Luis Borges. Yeah, he's good stuff. He's very fun. Um, if you liked this, I would suggest reading, honestly, just anything else he's written. All of his collections are good and inexpensive. I, can... I, I am overdue. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, other than what you have read, has there been anything that has been bringing you the old the old joy lacules? Ooh, my recommendation of the you go first. Okay. You go first. Come back. Uh, my recommendation of the week would be God damn it! I already recommended the book I was reading. Um, the, <laughs> that's part of the problem, right? It's like I, I've been so busy this week. My recommendation this week, honestly, is taking time to breathe out of your otherwise busy schedule. If you yeah. if you're a person that works full time and is feeling overworked, really like something that Fran and my therapist have suggested to me is that there. Even if it feels like there aren't five minutes in the day to just step away and breathe, there are. Mm. Find those five, ten minutes to just walk away from whatever awful thing capitalism is making you do and just let yourself have that moment. I, I know that sounds like a mindfulness thing. And I, and if you're a person out there who's working a very physically intensive job or has a very, like, job that really doesn't give you those ten minutes, know that my heart is absolutely with you and I'm very sorry that this advice is not helpful. Um, in that case, my advice is, you know, keep trucking, like, and, and know that, <laughs> yeah, which I'm sure you already know. But, yeah, that's, just take that time uh, for yourself, yeah. You know, when your partner and your therapist both have given advice, it's probably good advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's, those are pretty pretty solid sources. Yeah. <laughs> best for you. Um, I love that, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, I will simply echo it. Um, I'm a big fan of time blocking on a calendar. Mm-hmm. So, like, truly, like, putting time. I, I use calendar for work all day long, mm-hmm. so I, like, truly will put time on my calendar saying I'm doing this project at this time. Mm-hmm. Don't schedule a meeting mm-hmm. during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think using that in your personal life, too. It's my recommendation. Absolutely. You will not see me making plans on a Saturday or Sunday morning. I'll tell you <laughs> Good stuff. Good. Mm. Yeah, as it should be. Cool. Well, well, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Good Writing Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, if you want to send us an email, send us an email at goodwritingpod at gmail.com. I believe that's the correct. Goodwritingpodcast I'm always at gmail.com. messing that up. Goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. And join the illustrious halls of our uh, write-in, uh, our viewer mail. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. And if you have something short for us, we're on Twitter at goodwritingpod. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a wonderful week. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Bye. Bye.